Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome to the Mansion on the Hill. This is the home of Terry's serious moments. Stories of oddness, of weirdness of nature gone strange. This is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Hello everybody, this is Terry from Texas. It's the Christmas edition of Terry's Mysterious Moments. When I started this program, I promised to have weird, strange, offbeat type stories, not always of a paranormal nature. Definitely, the stories I have today are not paranormal, but they are a little odd. In peacetime, it's easy to have a nice Christmas celebration, even if it's just getting the family together having a meal, or maybe even going and visiting some of the family that you haven't seen in a while. Presents always make it nice, but times don't always allow for presents because the economy may be bad. And The phrase, well, the thought counts, comes into play a lot when there's no money to go around. In peacetime, it's easy to have Christmas. In wartime, it is a premium price to pay to have Christmas. Last year on the show, I talked about the Christmas truce of 1914 and 1915. These were unofficial truces between the armies facing off across Europe, the Germans on one side and the the British, the French on the other. And it started basically because a young German boy, and I say boy, early 20s maybe, stood up and started singing a Christmas carol that went out over no man's land and infected, if you will, the other side with the Christmas spirit. And for a day, there was no fighting, there were no guns going off, there were no cannons roar, nobody died. But there was peace and goodwill toward men. Gifts were exchanged. Some of the German soldiers had lived in England before the war and they asked about certain places. And it was like old home week in some areas of the front lines. That was only five months into the war in 1914. And it was easy to forget 
what had gone on prior. And in 1915, it was less easy and the truce was smaller. Of course, after the first one, the, the powers that be put out orders that this would not happen again. They are the enemy. We are not going to do this. And the troops said, yeah, well, we're the ones fighting, so we'll do what we will. The truce of 15 was smaller, uh, less widespread along the front lines, but still happened. In World War II, things were different. The enemy was viewed in much different terms than it was in the First World War. The German army was just evil in so many people's minds. If you're a history buff, if you're if you're a follower of World War II history, you know that around Christmas time of 1944, the Germans mounted an offensive, which we came to call the Battle of the Bulge. And in the midst of this murderous onslaught and horrific fighting, there was in one spot, one small house, a truce drawn up by the mother of the house. Again, this was no repeat of the Christmas truce of 1914. And as I've said, during Christmas in 1914 and World War I, thousands of British, French, and German soldiers, exhausted by the unprecedented slaughter of the previous five months, left their trenches and met the enemy in no man's land, exchanging gifts, food, and stories. Generals on both sides were irritated, determined to prevent fraternization in the future, saw to it that such activities would be severely punished, and so there were no large-scale, if unofficial, Christmas truces for the rest of that war, save for a smaller, no less uplifting one, in 1915. But in World War II, in December of 44, during the Battle of the Bulge, while the Americans fought for their lives against a massive German onslaught, a tiny shred of human decency happened on Christmas Eve, and a German mother made it so. Three American soldiers, one of whom was badly injured, were lost in the snow-covered Ardennes forest as they tried to find the American lines. They had been walking for three days, while the sounds of battle echoed in the hills and valleys all around them. Then on Christmas Eve, they came upon a small cabin in the woods. Elizabeth Vinken and her 12-year-old son Fritz had been hoping her husband would arrive to spend Christmas with them, but it was now too late. The Vinkens had been bombed out of their home in Aiken, Germany, and had managed to move into the hunting cabin in the Hertgen Forest, about four miles from Monschau, near the Belgian border. Fritz's father stayed behind to work and visited them when he could. Their Christmas meal would now have to wait for his arrival. Elizabeth and Fritz were alone in the cabin. Then a knocking at the cabin door broke the quiet and raised the fear inside. Elizabeth blew out the candles and opened the door to find two enemy American soldiers standing at the door and a third lying in the snow. Despite their rough appearance, they seemed hardly older than boys. They were armed and could have simply burst in, but they hadn't. So she invited them inside and they carried their wounded comrade into the warm cabin. Elizabeth didn't speak English 
and they didn't speak German, but they managed to communicate in broken French. Hearing their story and seeing their condition, especially the wounded soldier, Elizabeth started preparing a meal. She sent Fritz out to get six potatoes and Herman the rooster. His stay of execution, delayed by her husband's absence, was rescinded. Herman's namesake was Herman Goering, the Nazi leader, who Elizabeth didn't care for at all. While Herman roasted, there was another knock on the door, and Fritz went to open it, thinking there might be more lost Americans, but instead, there were four armed German soldiers. Knowing the penalty for harboring the enemy was execution, Elizabeth, white as a ghost, pushed past Fritz and stepped outside. There was a corporal and three very young soldiers who wished her a Merry Christmas, but they were lost and hungry. Elizabeth told them they were welcome to come into the warmth and eat until the food was all gone, but that there were others inside who they would not consider friends. The corporal asked sharply if there were Americans inside, and she said there were three who were lost and cold like they were, and one was wounded. The corporal stared hard at her until she said, Estes heiligabend und hier wird nicht geschehen. It is the holy night, and there will be no shooting here. She insisted they leave their weapons outside. Dazed by these events, they slowly complied, and Elizabeth went inside, demanding the same of the Americans. She took their weapons and stacked them outside next to the Germans. Understandably, there was a lot of fear and tension in the cabin, as the Germans and the Americans eyed each other warily, but the warmth and smell of roast Herman and potatoes began to take the edge off. The Germans produced a bottle of wine and a loaf of bread. While Elizabeth tended to the cooking, one of the German soldiers, an ex-medical student, examined the wounded American. In English, he explained that the cold had prevented infection but he had lost a lot of blood. He needed food and rest. By the time the meal was ready, the atmosphere was more relaxed. Two of the Germans were only 16. The corporal was 23. As Elizabeth said grace, Fritz noticed tears in the exhausted soldier's eyes, both the Germans and the Americans. The truce lasted through the night and into the morning. Looking at the Americans' map, the corporal told them the best way to get back to their lines and provided them with the compass. When asked whether they should go instead to Monschau, the corporal shook his head and said it was now in German hands. Elizabeth returned all their weapons and the enemies shook hands and left in opposite directions. Soon they were out of sight and the truce was over. Fritz and his parents survived the war his mother and father passed away in the 60s, and by then he had gotten married and moved to Hawaii, where he opened Fritz's European Bakery in Kapaloma, a neighborhood in Honolulu. For years, he tried to locate any of the German or American soldiers without luck, hoping to corroborate the story and see how they had fared. President Reagan heard of this story and referenced it in a 1985 speech he gave in Germany as an example of peace and reconciliation. 
But it wasn't until the television program Unsolved Mysteries broadcast the story in 1995 that it was discovered that a man living in a Frederick, Maryland nursing home had been telling the same story for years. Fritz flew to Frederick in January of 1996 and met with Ralph Blank, one of the American soldiers who still had the German compass and map. Ralph told Fritz, Your mother saved my life. Fritz said the reunion was the high point of his life. Fritz Vinken also managed to later contact one of the other Americans, but none of the Germans. Sadly, Fritz passed away on December 8th of 2002, almost 58 years to the day of the Christmas truce. He was forever grateful that his mother got the recognition she deserved. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So I've touched on World War I and then World War II. Let's go back in time a bit to the American Civil War. Being that war muchly consists of long periods of mind-numbing boredom, followed by long periods of body-numbing drill, then followed by frantic moments of sheer terror during battle. A time of peace is a blessing that any soldier appreciates. The boys in blue and the sons of the south were no different. Freezing weather in winter makes it that much more difficult. There was no worse time to be a soldier than the dead of winter. Far from home and freezing cold, the enlisted men of the Union and Confederate armies often struggled to perform their duties or even to just survive in the harsh weather. Thousands of men died from exposure or disease throughout the war, to say nothing of the horses or mules that died, and that could make life just that much more difficult for the men. Fed up with the conditions on the front, many turned their thoughts to home, and failing to return to their families via desertion, tried to replicate what they could with their comrades to keep back the melancholy and drudgery of winter, if only for a while. This is a writing about Christmas along the Rappahannock River in Virginia, circa 1862, as it is said to have occurred just after the debacle of the Federal attempt to take Fredericksburg. A group of Federal troops came upon a group of Confederates across the river, but instead of raising their rifles, the two sides showed each other signs of Christmas cheer. It began thusly. Gentlemen, the chair of the professor of the mathematics is vacant in this college. Permit me to introduce you to Captain Fraser. Ra, 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 and away we went and enlisted to go to Richmond. It took us three years to get there. No wonder. There were so many long streets to make our way through, so many hills to climb, so many stone walls to batter down, so many pickets to clear out of the way. It was as hard 
as a road to travel as the steep and stony one to heaven. Now the, the words that I just used, long street, hill, stonewall, and picket, those are references to Confederate generals James Longstreet, A.P. Hill, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, and George Pickett. I started for Richmond in July of 1862, a lad 18 years old, a junior in college, and chafing to be at it to double quick it after John Brown's soul, which, since it did not require a knapsack or three days rations, or a canteen, or a halt during the night for sleep, was always marching on. On the night before Christmas of 1862, I was a dejected young patriot, wishing I hadn't done it, shivering in the open weather a mile back of the Rappahannock on the reserve picket and exposed to a wet snowstorm. There was not a stick of wood within five miles of us. All had been cut down. Even the roots of the trees had been burned up. We lay down on our rubber blankets, pulled our woolen blankets over us, and spooned as close as we could to each other to steal warmth from our comrades, and we tried not to cry. Next morning the snow lay heavy and deep, and the men, when I awakened and looked about me, reminded me of a church graveyard in winter. Fall in for picket duty. There, come Moore, McManus, Paxton, Perrine, Pollock, fall in. We all fell in, of course. No breakfast. Chilled to the marrow. Snow a foot deep. We tightened our belts on our empty stomachs, seized our rifles, and marched to the river to take our six hours on duty. It was Christmas Day, 1862. And so this is war. My old me said to himself while he paced in the snow his two hours on the river's brink. And I am out here to shoot that lean, lank, coughing, cadaverous-looking butternut fellow over the river. So this is war. This is being a soldier. This is the genuine article. This is Horace Greeley's On to Richmond. Well, I wish he were here in my place, running to keep warm, pounding his arms and breasts to make the chilled blood circulate. So this is war, tramping up and down this river, my fifty yards, with wet feet, empty stomach, and swollen nose. Alas, when lying under the trees in the college campus last June, war meant to me martial music, gorgeous brigadiers in blue and gold, tall young men in line, shining in brass. War meant to me tumultuous memories of Bunker Hill, Caesar's 10th Legion, the charge of the 600. Anything but this. Shaw, I wish I were home. Let me see. Home? God's country. A tear? Yes, it is a tear. What are they doing at home? This is Christmas Day. Home? Well, stockings on the wall. Candy, turkey, fun. Merry Christmas time in the face of the girl I left behind. Yes, there was a girl too. Such sweet eyes, such long lashes, such a low, tender voice. 
Another tear? Yes, I couldn't help it. I was only 18, and there was such a contrast between Christmas 1862 on the Rappahannock and other Christmases I'd had before. Come, move quicker. Who goes there? Shift the rifle from one aching shoulder to the other. Hello, Johnny. What are you up to? The river was narrow, but deep and swift. It was a wet cold, not a freezing cold. There was no ice, too swift for that. Yank, with no overcoat, shoes full of holes, nothing to eat but parched corn and tobacco, and with this darned Yankee snow a foot deep, there's nothing left, nothing but to get up a cough by way of protesting against this infernal ill-treatment of the body. We and Yank all have a cough over here, and there's no saying which will run us to hole first, the cough or your bullets. The snow still fell. The keen wind, raw and fierce, cut to the bone. It was God's worst weather in God's forlornest, bleakest spot of ground that Christmas day of 1862 on the Rappahannock, a half mile below the town of Fredericksburg. But come, pick up your prostrate pluck, you shivering private. Surely there is enough dampness around without your adding to it in your tears. Let's laugh, boys. Hello, Johnny. Hello yourself, Yank. Merry Christmas, Johnny. Same to you, Yank. Say, Johnny, got anything to trade? Parched corn and tobacco, the size of our Christmas, Yank. All right, you shall have some of our coffee and sugar and pork. Boys, find the boats. Such boats. I see the children sailing them on small lakes in our central park. Some Yankee, desperately hungry for tobacco, invented them for trading with the Johnnies. They were hid away under the banks of the river for successive relays of pickets. We got out the boats. An old handkerchief answered for a sail. We loaded them with coffee, sugar, pork, and set the sail and watched them slowly creep to the other shore. And the Johnnies? To see them crowd the bank and push and scramble to be the first to seize the boats, going into the water and stretching out their long arms. Then, when they pulled the boats ashore and stood in a group over the cargo to hear their exclamations, Hurrah for hog! Say, that's not roasted rye, but genuine coffee. Smell it, Ewans. And sugar, too. Then they divided the consignment. They laughed and shouted, Reckon Ewans been good to Ewans this Christmas Day, Yank. Then they put parched corn, tobacco, ripe persimmons into the boats and sent them back to us. We chewed the parched corn, smoked real Virginia leaf, ate persimmons, which, if they weren't very filling, at least contracted our stomachs to the size of our Christmas dinner. And so the day passed. We shouted, Merry Christmas, Johnny, they shouted. Same to you, Yank. And we forgot the biting wind, the chilling cold. We forgot those men over there were our enemies, whom it might be our duty to shoot before evening. We had bridged the river, spanned the bloody chasm. We were brothers, waving salutations of goodwill in the name of the Babe of Bethlehem on Christmas Day in 1862.
We were at the very front of the opposing armies, and yet the Christ child struck a truce of us. It broke down the wall of partition, and it became our peace. We exchanged gifts. We shouted greetings back and forth. We kept Christmas, and our hearts were lighter for it, and our shivering bodies were not quite so cold. In any war at any time in history, since Christmas began, men have found ways and reason to treat the enemy with brotherhood. May only be a shouted greeting, but it still happens. In this year of 2020, which has been probably the most awful year since any of the Great Depression, any of World War II, any of World War I, any of the great Spanish influenza outbreak, we need to look toward that babe of Bethlehem for our peace. Strange things happen on battlefields, but to see men refuse to kill each other for an ideal to share Christmas, that's not strange, that's humanity. This Christmas season, I wish each of you the best of all that is offered. I wish you peace. I wish you love of family. I wish you safety. Merry Christmas, everybody. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour and Unexplained Cases. Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments, or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.